In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London, but this week in Manchester for the Conservative Party Conference. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor, normally in Dublin but currently in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. And of course, in Manchester, we'll be looking ahead to the Tory Party Conference there next week and looking back at Keir Starmer's speech at the Labour Party Conference. We'll hear from Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester about post-Brexit relationships and making Brexit work. And we'll get an update from Simon Coveney on where things are with the Northern Ireland Protocol and why Ireland is opening a new consulate in Manchester. And fish is back on the menu with a sudden flare-up on the high seas over French access to UK waters, in particular the fishing grounds of Jersey, and why Paris is threatening trade sanctions against Britain as a result. But first, Sean, as we mentioned, you're in Manchester in, I think you said before we started to record this, the worst apartment you've been in since Pristina in the 1990s. That's quite the boast. What's the reason behind the suffering? No tables, dodgy internet and a television set that doesn't show domestic channels like BBC and ITV or Sky News. Rather difficult if you're a broadcast journalist who likes to keep up with the news. Uh, it does have windows. They do leak the air in, I'm afraid to say. that. When we did stay in that grand hotel in Pristina, Tony, you might remember coming to my salubrious apartment, there was no glass in the windows, no water in the taps. Um, but, you know, <laughs> at least, at least, at least you could get petrol everybody. in Pristina. You certainly could, just about. Um, we've had our, our travails with that, of course, uh, this week, not the least in our uh, journeys last night. Uh, interrupted as well, because unfortunately, uh, a truck had shed its load on the motorway and part of its load included 500 litres of diesel which destroyed part of the surface on the M6 which had to be dug up and resurfaced causing four hour tailbacks. Of all times not to offload 500 litres of diesel it was it was so this week. Precious, you so were, precious. You were out with the teaspoon. Uh, yeah amongst all the others uh, <laughs> if, if you could imagine people licking diesel from the surface of a motorway it would almost be the, the case. We've all done it Sean. We've all done it. Also noticing the prices on the way up, which, you know, there's always a bit of a difference uh, in petrol stations and particularly for motorway ones. But the spread in prices had gone from 134 to 153 pence per litre. And that's pretty pricey. Uh, that's, a, you know, a, a very big spread uh, in the, the, the price of diesel. But of course, uh, quite a few of the places that we passed last night were closed, as indeed were the, the uh, stations that we passed coming from the Labour Party conference uh, in Brighton uh, earlier in the week. We, we had a, a random drive up the A roads from Brighton back into London and uh, most of the stations, frankly, were closed or had run out, partly run out of petrol. Some of their tanks uh, were uh, sealed off. And that is the big talking point in Britain this week, as you can imagine, uh, amongst ordinary people and the political classes who are feeling the heat from those said ordinary people. 
they can't get petrol in their cars uh, or their trucks or their vans. They can't go about their daily business. They're spending lots of time queuing up and it's not good for them. It's also not a good look for the government, uh, which is frantically denying that it's anything to do with Brexit. But other people are saying it's something to do with Brexit. Uh, and indeed, the Times newspaper today carrying a column by the chief political correspondent of Bild Zeitung from Germany, um, lashing out the old schadenfreude there and saying, well, we told you this kind of stuff would happen. It's happened. And frankly, we don't care. It's your problem now. You've left the EU. Uh, you just have to get on with it. So uh, an icy blast coming from Berlin about that one. But yeah, it's, it's conference season here in Britain. There's no parliament at the moment, which is possibly a relief for the government. If you're going to have a fuel crisis, best not to have one when the opposition can be jumping up and down, uh, hugging the limelight. They did have a bit of jumping up and down, hugging the limelight earlier in the week at that uh, Labour Party conference where Keir Starmer landed his great line of the whole thing, uh, having a go at the government policy of levelling up, which is going to be a big theme at the Tory conference. He said, level up, you can't even fill up. <laughs> there you go. Pause I'm, for I'm, laughter. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm lost. I'm lost for words. Sean. All right. Do you, want to, do you want to hear what he said about Brexit then? A very quick throwaway okay, well, let's, line. Let, let's, let's start there. We'll, 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 take, we'll, we'll swerve back on the road to Manchester once they have the diesel cleared then. Go on. What went on about Brexit? Not, I mean, not I, a lot is the short answer. In, in Keir Starmer's uh, speech, which is an hour and a half, he basically had one line about Brexit, which is accusing Boris Johnson of having a plan to get Brexit done, but having no plan to make Brexit work. Um, that was basically it, a cue for a pause, applause, and uh, his other land, I suppose, out of the, the, this conference speech, saying that uh, Boris Johnson is not a bad man, but he is a trivial man. And I think that's one of those ones that is going to stick, uh, is going to hurt a bit, and uh, is probably one that they're going to return to. Uh, right. How do you attack somebody like Boris Johnson, who, as we've said on the show before, is, is basically bomb-proof? This might just be the one uh, that starts to gnaw at him uh, over time, uh, as we see these more of these crises, uh, like the fuel crisis, but also the slow burner things, the, the cost of living, lots of things going up, uh, the government starting to pare back on social welfare payments, uh, an unpleasant sort of a difficult winter year, maybe even 18 months lying ahead for this government. A lot of difficult things has to have to be done. It's not going to be an easy time to be a leading politician in Britain. And Boris Johnson... Uh, that easy charm that he has, um, it might start to wear a bit thin with people, particularly if the opposition are starting to look like possibly a serious alternative government. Right. They're unlikely to press him forensically on Brexit because for all Keir Starmer says about Boris Johnson not having a plan for after Brexit, um, <clears throat> the Labour Party has been studiously avoiding that subject as well. There were a few mentions of it in Keir Starmer's recent uh, policy document for the Fabian Society, but really it's an area after the pain they went through in the last general election that they're trying to avoid as well. There are I suppose, vague mutterings about filling in the holes in Brexit. But if you were expecting Keir Starmer to pull an alternative comprehensive plan out of his back pocket and point by point attack the Tories about it, you were going to be left waiting a long time. You are going to be waiting a long time. And as you rightly say, the Labour Party was as divided as the Conservative Party over Brexit. Uh, they're trying to heal those wounds. And 
it's probably best from the point of view of the internal workings of the party not to say very much about it probably best for electoral reasons not to draw too much attention to it although uh, as uh, Anand Benon the um, economics professor who follows Brexit matters very closely has pointed out in a fringe event at that Labour conference Labour has really in, in putting these issues aside not mentioning the B word that they've basically failed to prepare the ground on which to attack the government over things like uh, the fuel shortage, like the shortage of food supplies, the problems with deliveries of a whole range of goods uh, across the United Kingdom, uh, areas that they really ought to be uh, bashing the government on. I mean, we've spoken about open goals before, and Keir Starmer in particular, not putting the ball in the back of the net. Well, uh, I think Professor Menon might well have put his finger on the cause of that. They haven't really prepared the ground uh, in order to do that. Uh, so let's w watch and see if the opposition can prepare that ground or whether the ground keeps running ahead of them as it appears to be doing at the moment. Right. OK, well, speed up the road then to Manchester and what the Tories are doing, Sean. In advance of this, uh, in the Daily Telegraph, we had Ian Duncan-Smith calling for Article 16 to be triggered. Has there been much briefing about that? How seriously are we to take that? And how central a figure is Ian Duncan-Smith? How much weight would that carry in the first place anyway? He's not central at all to the negotiations, obviously. Uh, you know, there's, as we know, no shortage of people on the back benches who um, like to make a bit of noise, and particularly in this conference uh, season. Um, we've got the, the Conservative conference starting on Sunday, and there will be all sorts of uh, fringe events and main events at which they will be trying to mobilise their base and keep their base happy and keep the people who do the electoral work for them motivated. And uh, a key group in that constituency are the uh, Brexiters, the people who are very motivated by Brexit, uh, who want to see it succeed uh, and uh, don't like having the difficulties pointed out to them. Uh, and so in order to maybe divert a bit of attention uh, from the difficulties out there, particularly that petrol crisis, there might be a temptation to, in the words of the Prime Minister himself, throw a dead cat on the table and get people talking about the dead cat rather than what's going on elsewhere. Uh, whether Article 16 would be a suitable dead cat uh, I think we would have our doubts about that one. It's uh, not necessarily something that too many people in Britain will be uh, terribly concerned about. As I say, they're much more concerned about getting fuel into their car. Uh, picking another row with the EU mightn't be tactically the best thing to do. And from a big politics point of view, uh, it it's really doesn't make sense, particularly at this time, because the uh, European Union haven't uh, tabled any proposals. It's extremely early in the game to be playing a card uh, of such magnitude uh, as Article 16. Lord Frost uh, is speaking at the uh, Tory party conference. Uh, he'll be making his debut there. He's due to speak quite early on Monday morning, rather ungentlemanly hour of 10 past nine. So we'll have to see what he has to say, whether that's a potential uh, slot for them to say something about Brexit. But I'm not really sure that they're talking this one up. There was a lot of chatter last week and coming into this week that Article 16 might be something uh, that, that could be thrown out. Uh, however, when we caught up with uh, Simon Coveney, who's also here in Manchester today, uh, not for uh, the Tory party conference, uh, but he's opening uh, an Irish consulate here. I think we might talk a little bit more about that later. But he uh, was uh, saying, uh, no, what he's hearing is they're not going to trigger Article 16 uh, and there's no real reason to do it, certainly not at this stage. Uh, there's really nothing to be gained 
and in terms of uh, the domestic politics, definitely nothing to be gained uh, for the Conservatives to trigger Article 16 at this point. Well, today is a big good news story, actually, for the British-Irish relationship. Uh, we're investing in the future here, and we're recognising an extraordinary uh, strength of connection, if you like, between Northern England and Ireland. Um, Northern England is a population of 15 million people. It's a huge economy, much bigger than Ireland's. Uh, and uh, we are investing in establishing and setting up effectively a mini embassy uh, for Northern England to deal with cities like Manchester, Liverpool, and right up to, to York, Newcastle, Leeds, Sheffield. Um, these are cities, and this is a region that has a deep connection to Ireland. I mean, up to 35% of the population of Greater Manchester has an Irish connection. It's about 40% in Liverpool. Um, so uh, the welcome that we've got here has been really strong. Uh, and I believe that by investing here in terms of a diplomatic footprint, uh, we can build the relationships from a trade perspective, from a business perspective, from a student perspective, from a research perspective. And believe me, here in Northern England, they want to do all of that with Ireland. And in fact, the mayor of the Greater Manchester area and the mayor of Liverpool, both of whom I'm meeting today, will be jointly leading a trade mission to Ireland in the first quarter of next year to reinforce that relationship. Um, so this is a very strong and positive signal of intent that reminds people uh, that England and the UK, our closest neighbour, is still our most valuable partner when it comes to trade and relationships. Is this a post-Brexit move then? Is Brexit the trigger for doing this now? Well, I think because of Brexit, we have to reinforce the connections to remind people that just because the United Kingdom has made a decision to leave the European Union and is moving in a different direction politically, if you like, to the European Union, doesn't mean that the bilateral relationship between Britain and Ireland uh, needs to be fundamentally undermined. Like we have a 90 billion euro trade relationship going both ways each year between Ireland and the UK. Um, and that is uh, an enormously important part of the Irish economy. But of course, it's much more than that. It's also about the arts, it's about literature, it's about sport. You know, how many Irish people fly from Dublin and Cork uh, and other parts of Ireland uh, to the UK to watch football matches here and so on every week? Uh, the connections between uh, Britain and Ireland, but also Northern England and Ireland, cities like Liverpool and Manchester, uh, I think is very strong. And we are investing in protecting that relationship for the future and actually building on it. The Mayor of Liverpool, Steve Rotherham, has said previously Dublin is just 25 minutes away by air, but it's an hour to Manchester by road. Uh, they seem quite keen on, on developing relationships. Yeah, I mean, he's also said that Liverpool is Ireland's second city. Um, I think people in Cork would have something to say about that. Um, but, you know, the, the Mayor um, uh, of both Manchester and Liverpool, um, they really do take the relationship with Ireland very, very seriously. <clears throat> it's hugely positive. And that's replicated, by the way, in other cities across Northern England, uh, where so many Irish people, first generation and second generation, uh, that have made Northern England their home, still value their connection with Ireland. Uh, and that is an enormous asset for us. And of course, those relationships uh, are something that we have a responsibility to protect. So this, if, if you like, is setting up a, an embassy, as people will see it, in Manchester for Northern England. Uh, really, I think, reinforces the relationship between the Irish government, but also the Irish people and Northern England. Uh, and the opportunities there from an employment and a business and a trade perspective uh, are very, very strong.
When you talk about embassies, I mean, most people think embassies deal with other governments. Here you're dealing with mayors, and in Britain they're starting to roll out these executive mayors. There's a change in the way the country is being governed. Is this consulate a response to that as well, uh, the, the way that Britain is, is starting to become more like a federal country? Well, I mean, certainly regional governance is very, very strong ac across the UK. I mean, if you speak to Andy Burnham, who's the mayor of, uh, and I'll be meeting him today, uh, the mayor of the Greater Manchester area, if you speak to Steve Rotherham in Liverpool, you know, these are powerful, influential people that have been part of shaping the expansion and the investment and the growth of their cities. Of course, they, they negotiate with uh, the government in London on that in terms of investment packages and, and there's been a real levelling up agenda uh, within the UK to try to drive investment into Northern England which may have been lacking in the past. So you know the Greater Manchester area now has the same population as Ireland uh, because of the investment and the growth that's happening here and so we need to be part of that growth. You know Irish people have always been part of the growth uh, in and across the UK, you know, whether it's building buildings and bridges or whether it's uh, being you know, at the centre of entrepreneurship and, uh, 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 and research in more recent times. And we want to be part of the next stage of growth as well. And actually, Northern England, or certainly parts of Northern England, are growing at a faster pace than London is um, in terms of economic development right now. Uh, and so that is what Ireland will be involved in and wants to be involved in, you know, this is our closest neighbour um, and we have deep roots and strong foundations here uh, and the investment that we're making in terms of a diplomatic footprint here uh, is to ensure that we protect and build on that. Uh, other people who are visiting this city over the weekend are the Conservative Party for their conference, theme of which is levelling up and trying to um, build up, I guess, the north of England in terms of its uh, economy. Do you see Ireland through this consulate, through Enterprise Ireland here, getting in on the act, as it were, if there's money and expenditure going on here on the levelling up agenda, is that something Irish firms should be thinking about benefiting from? Well, we're already in on the act in terms of the levelling up agenda and growth across the United Kingdom. I mean, in the last 18 months, 67 Irish companies have set up a presence um, in and across uh, Great Britain. Um, and I think, you know, if you think about... What's happened over the last 18 months in terms of a pandemic, in terms of the, uh, the outflows of Brexit and so on, uh, the fact that we had nearly 70 Irish companies setting up a presence here, employing people locally, um, you know, I think that gives you an idea as to the ambition within the private sector in Ireland uh, in terms of ensuring that, that the Great Britain market is very much part of their expansion and growth plans. And it is. Uh, and we want to encourage and reinforce that. And, of course, we want to be here for, for Irish citizens who are living in Northern England to assist them, to support them, to advise them. But we also want to be strategically part of planning for the future uh, in, a, in an area of 15 million people right on our doorstep uh, as our closest neighbour. Uh, and so for lots of reasons, uh, investing in uh, technically what's called a consulate here, but in many ways what will be seen as a mini Irish embassy effectively in Manchester makes a lot of sense. I mean, don't forget, we've also invested in something similar in Wales. And of course, we, we've reinforced our presence in Scotland as well, um, as well as actually increasing our team in London. So in some ways, yes, this is a post-Brexit response to make sure that we maintain the close relationship uh, with Great Britain. Uh, but I also think uh, it, in many ways, is a reminder of just how deep the relationships here are um, I mean, don't forget, there are 140,000 
Irish-born people living in Northern England. And if you look at that in Irish terms, you know, only the cities of Cork and Dublin have a bigger population than that, um, you know, in Ireland. So this is a, a network, it's a resource, and of course these are our people, uh, and uh, we need to stay connected with them. Businesses always find a way to do business, people find a way to make connections, but there is the issue of the uh, Brexit and in particular the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is the political issue of the moment in terms of uh, British-Irish relations. What's your understanding of the latest, if there is a latest, on uh, Brexit and the uh, proposals that Lord Frost made back in July and the anticipated response from the European Commission? Look, I mean, this has been a difficult period for British-Irish relations in the context of Brexit and, of course, uh, in particular in the context of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which, of course, was designed by the EU and the British government together to try to manage the disruption of Brexit uh, in the context of the island of Ireland and of Northern Ireland. And the implementation of that uh, protocol has been difficult. It's caused problems and it's caused a lot of political tension. Uh, my job and the, the job of other people who are involved in this negotiation is to try and find a way through this uh, to, uh, to ensure that we maximise the flexibility within the parameters of the protocol uh, to reduce the disruption on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland while at the same time protecting Ireland's place in the EU single market. Uh, and that's not easy. Uh, and uh, Lord Frost uh, is obviously central to that in the context of uh, the British government's negotiating team and uh, Vice President Sefcovic in the Commission on the EU side. So we are working with both, uh, I, in particular with, with the EU side, and we're, we're, we're part of that team. Um, I think what you can expect now is in the second half of October, uh, you will see a package of proposals coming from the EU side in consultation with, uh, with Lord Frost and his team. Um, and I hope that um, that package can address a lot of the the difficult issues, particularly for unionism in Northern Ireland, uh, to reduce the, the checks burden on goods that are coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland and remaining in Northern Ireland, where we can show that they are remaining in Northern Ireland. Um, I think issues like the uh, uh, certainty around the supply of medicines into Northern Ireland can and will be resolved. Um, uh, and, and so this from an EU perspective and from an Irish perspective, is about trying to itemise the real problems here and trying to solve them with pragmatism and flexibility. And certainly I think there is a, there's an appetite to do that on the EU side and I hope um, you know, that we have a partner in the British government to help us do that. But there has been some chatter in Westminster over the past week, 10 days, speculating that perhaps the British government are going to activate Article 16 now. Now might be a good time to do it and possibly even during this conference week, the Conservative Party conference is coming up. What's your sense of, of that? I think that's unlikely. Um, we have, we, I mean, I've heard that chatter too, of course. Um, but uh, in terms of what the people who really matter say on this issue, um, um, my, the, my understanding is that uh, the British government is not likely to trigger Article 16. I, I think it would be a hugely problematic backward step uh, in relationships between the UK government and the EU institutions at a time actually when we're trying to build trust between the Sefcovic and Frost teams. Um, the idea that in the middle of that, uh, when I think both sides know that this month is going to be a very important month, particularly the second half of it, in terms of trying to come up with compromise solutions uh, to, to solve the protocol issues, the idea that in the middle of that, 
the British government would announce a triggering of Article 16, which essentially sets aside their obligations under the protocol. Um, you know, I think that would be uh, politically a huge mistake, uh, but I also think it's something that's not likely to happen, despite the rumour mill that's out there. Uh, there's always rumours in relation to Brexit and, uh, and negotiating strategies uh, and so on, but uh, uh, my knowledge... Uh, of this would suggest that that is not likely to happen. Okay, that was the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence, Simon Coveney, talking to Sean. Tony, how seriously is talk of Article 16 being triggered to being taken in Brussels? I mean, it's there in the command paper, as Lord Frost said, the conditions were already there to trigger Article 16. It has been sticking ostentatiously from the metaphorical back pocket of the UK for quite some time. Does this ramp up the tensions over that at all? I mean, I think people as Sean said, we're preoccupied with this a couple of weeks ago. Um, But the signal that I certainly got last week, and I think we mentioned this in last week's podcast, was that if the UK did decide to trigger Article 16, then the European Commission would trigger legal action themselves against the UK because they believe that the grounds aren't there for Article 16 to be triggered. And there would be a kind of a hierarchy of responses by the Commission going all the way up to potential trade measures, trade retaliation measures under the uh, Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Um, certainly the signals that I'm getting from uh, British officials I've spoken to is that, is that they're not going to trigger Article 16 next week, uh, that they are engaged in a serious discussion with the European Commission on the command paper. Um, they're awaiting these proposals from Maro Shevchevic which will come out after the Tory party conference on medicines, on uh, agri-food checks and controls in the protocol, uh, on customs issues, and also on how Stormont, both the Assembly and the Executive, could have more purchase on how the protocol is implemented, uh, on oversight. And you know, while those conversations are ongoing, it would be folly for the UK to suddenly trigger Article 16. Uh, having said all that, the, the UK is not averse to surprising everybody uh, when they're not expecting it. But I think on this occasion, that they while there will be probably some hot-blooded rhetoric around the protocol and the dastardly European Commission's implementing of it, um, I think people are relatively relaxed here that, that it's not going to happen. This is conference cod is how it's been regarded in brussels is it and that's the the british officials in brussels imploring people to treat it as such yeah i mean i I think there's a little bit of signaling going on that look um it's party conference what do you expect uh there will be some rhetoric around it some noise and and heat but they won't go so far as to uh, trigger trigger article 16 but again uh, one official i spoke to said look People in Brussels are obsessing about the Tory party conference. They're paranoid about it. Um, I wouldn't say if it it, it goes that far, but um, certainly, you know, it, it, it always draws a lot of attention uh, from Brussels because people, of course, don't know what's going to be said. I mean, and that's true going all the way back to Theresa May's first big party conference speech in October 2016 when, when she made her famous um, Brexit means Brexit speech. So... You know, it is a, a a source of fascination in some parts, but I mean, frankly, European capitals are much more preoccupied by other things at the moment uh, rather than the, the protocol.
Right. Bear in mind also, it's it's the British politics is bearing is much more preoccupied with things other than Brexit or the protocol, uh, and indeed the, the formal agenda at this conference is really uh, top heavy. Uh, with the notion of levelling up, uh, again, back to that uh, little jibe from Keir Starmer earlier, but levelling up is the big thing that they want to talk about now. Uh, they want to try and put some flesh on the bones uh, of this uh, idea that they have uh, and talk to people about that. And also remember, in terms of the electoral cycle, we're at the midway point now. Basically, the firing gun for the next election uh, has already been uh, fired with that cabinet reshuffle we had here in Britain recently. And now they want to present this new team uh, and talk about things that are going to be important to British voters at the next election, which will probably be in the spring of 2023. Uh, so they don't really have that much time to start getting some big agenda items through. And looking backwards, as they would see it, to uh, towards Brexit, uh, probably not something that they want to do. They have got Brexit done, but now it's on to other business. So if you want to motivate people, you've got to motivate them around another project. And that is this notion of levelling up. Right. Sean, before we leave you in Manchester, another thing you were mentioning there was the Irish uh, new consulate being, being opened there. And also you were picking up sentiment on the ground, not from government circles, but from opposition circles that as a region... Uh, Manchester and surrounding areas would rather their pad- paddle their own canoe as far as relationships with Europe are concerned. What have you been hearing? Right, well, the reason we're here today and not Sunday uh, is that, uh, and the reason why Simon Coveney is here, is to uh, perform an official opening ceremony for a consulate general uh, here based in Manchester, but covering uh, the whole of the north of England, uh, which is roughly about the third of the population of England itself. Uh, as the minister put it uh, to me earlier, it's a, a much bigger market than Ireland is. Manchester itself has a bigger population than Ireland does. And of course, there's huge historic uh, links between Ireland and the north of England. About a third of the population of Manchester have some kind of Irish links about 40% in Liverpool. So the regions are very close. The mayor of Liverpool likes to talk about Dublin being 25 minutes away by air, while Manchester's an hour away on the road. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, contacts here. The Irish now want to plant their flag, literally and metaphorically, uh, in this region uh, to try and, I guess, compensate for some of the missing pieces uh, of contact that they used to have when Britain was part of the European Union, the way ministers and officials would be constantly meeting and bumping into each other in corridors in Brussels. Uh, they don't have that anymore, so they're looking to formalise contacts for what is still uh, a really, really important trading partner. Uh, the British also need to uh, stay in touch with Ireland because it's a really important trading partner for them. Despite all the talk of uh, global Britain, Ireland remains their sixth biggest trading partner. Uh, it's about 90 billion now is the, the uh, figure that the Irish government are using, 90 billion euro uh, of uh, annual trade for food and drink. Uh, Ireland is the biggest export market uh, for Britain. So it's an important relationship. It's one that needs looking after. Uh, this is a big part of the region. And also politically with the devolution project in Britain, uh, we know about Scotland and Wales and there are already Irish consulates there, but also they've been more recently rolling out powers to uh, large uh, executive mayorships around the country. One of the biggest, most important of them, of course, here in Manchester. Uh, so it's important politically to stay in touch with them because they are doing their own thing, uh, certainly on terms of trade and industrial development in their region. 
and there's going to be a trade mission jointly led by the mayors of Manchester and Liverpool to Ireland next year. Possibly the easiest trade mission in the history of trade missions, but just to make sure they're going to bring along representatives of their four big football teams in the region to guarantee that people turn up uh, to meet the politicians and uh, traders when they come. Uh, but also there is this uh, sense of regional identity emerging uh, through these executive mayorships. Um, and the mayor of Manchester exemplifies that, Andy Burnham. He was a, a cabinet minister under Gordon Brown, but he has kind of stepped back from Westminster politics, at least for the moment, to run this big executive mayorship in Manchester. Uh, and when I spoke to him earlier this morning, he also talked about uh, the idea of, as you say, Manchester doing its own relationships uh, and speaking with its own voice to other countries in Europe, not just Ireland. Yes, it's on. Uh, it's on for the spring of next year. So we'll be out there in, in force. A uh, big delegation from both uh, of our city regions. And, you know, there's such a bond, isn't there, between uh, people here uh, in Manchester and Liverpool and people right across Ireland. So I think it'll be a, you know, it'll be a special trip. And it's not just about trade. It'll be people-to-people -people links. We're trying to persuade our four big football clubs to come with us, uh, which... You know, we know uh, attracts a lot of interest over in Ireland. So we're trying to really make it a big deal because, as I say, we're not going to let events of the recent past get in the way of that long-standing friendship between people here and people across Ireland. Keir Starmer spoke in his conference, in the Labour Party conference, about the government has no plan to make Brexit work. I mean, is this part of it? I mean, you have to see through and beyond what's happened with Brexit and try and make it work? Oh, 100%. And, you know, we, we are in a position where we don't want the government in London always speaking for us. You know, all of the, some of the nonsense at times that's been spoken at that national level uh, around the relationship with Europe and with individual uh, countries, it makes us cringe at times because, you know, we haven't changed as the people of uh, the northwest of England. You know, we're still the same people we always were. And we don't want anything to get in the way with that relationship we have with the, the people of Ireland. So you know, we're coming over to, to say that uh, and to obviously hopefully take things forward uh, in, in, a, in a positive direction. Um, so that's very much our intention. That was Andy Burnham there talking to you, Sean. Uh, Tony, of course, it shouldn't be forgotten that every Christmas Ireland provides a stimulus to Manchester in the form of probably a few million quid spent on jerseys. And now comes our clunky pun of the week. Speaking of jerseys, you've been looking at the <laughs> island of Jersey. That's right. Um, and, and this is once again the question of fisheries, uh, one of the most uh, highly sensitive and in terms of GDP importance, uh, low importance uh, issue uh, in relations between the UK and the EU, uh, as we know. Um, and there's another flare up on that issue, mainly because the UK was due to hand out licenses for uh, small boats that would be fishing in the six to 12 mile zone off the, the UK coast. Uh, and that is has a connection to where Jersey is located. Um, and they only granted licenses for 12 boats out of a total of 47 that had applied for licenses. You have, you have 37 French fishing boats that now don't have permits to fish in those waters that they traditionally fish in. Now, the argument has always been, 
when it comes to Brexit and fisheries, um, yes, Brexiteers said they were going to take back control of its waters. The EU said, well, British uh, the waters have been accessible to European fleets for centuries, so not so fast on that front. And in the trade and cooperation agreement, it, it was agreed that French and other European boats would still have access to British waters, um, much to the chagrin of uh, some Brexiteers, but that's how the negotiations uh, ended up last year. Um, but the, the French have said now in, in the past couple of weeks that they've been told that uh, they will not get all of the permits that they, that they were promised. And coming in the back of the AUKUS submarine uh, imbroglio that France is hopping mad about, this was another reason for them to get mad again. And uh, the Europe Minister Clément Bone uh, accused Britain of not complying with the agreement and saying that France would not hesitate to take retaliatory action. Now, I think in, in, in the run-up to this, well, that would mean tabling a motion at EU level to uh, have trade sanctions against the UK uh, as a potential response to, to this issue. Now, that would obviously be taking things very far, and I don't think things are going to go that far. There was some talk that they would put the question of retaliatory trade measures on the agenda of the working party uh, today, which is officials from all the different member states who discuss Brexit uh, every week. Um, it was raised at a meeting of EU ambassadors this morning, but just as an information point, France wasn't formally pushing for trade retaliatory sanctions against the UK. But I think this is a reflection of how badly they feel about this issue and how hard done by, hard done by they feel over the submarine issue. Um, the French had been expecting the UK to be generous with the licenses that it had applied for. Um, but when it came to it early this week, when there was a meeting between the French and the British and the, the officials from Jersey, it turned out that they were not going to get what they had expected in terms of licenses. Um, the British are saying, look, if you want to have uh, your licenses renewed, then you have to show evidence that you have been fishing in these waters uh, historically. And obviously the UK took a view that a certain number of boats, quite a large number of boats, weren't able to prove that. Now, some of these boats are only 12 meters. They mightn't have the tracking equipment and high-tech uh, gizmos that allow you to prove uh, what you've been doing at sea. Um, and other, for other reasons, French people, French fishermen might change their boat they might buy a new boat they they might the boat might have a different color so all of that might genuinely hold up the license that you get but certainly the french believe that the british were uh, somewhat playing silly buggers with um the the fishing is issue possibly to you know raise the tension ahead of the tory party conference we know back in in the spring when boris johnson sent two patrol boats into jersey waters that caused an awful lot of uh, hue and cry and, and headlines. And, you know, it is seen as an easy flag-waving issue for the Tory party. Um, but people who are quite close to this say genuinely um, the UK did not seem to want to be getting into another scrap over this issue. There's going to be very difficult talks coming up over the next months over what, what are called tax, the total allowable catch that both sides have to work out in the entirety of UK waters. 
um, the, the, the trade agreement works out the share of fish that each country will get, but the total allowable catch works out you know what the numbers are each year and that's that's based on science and, and that's going to be a very very tricky negotiation between the eu and the uk and the feeling in brussels was and in paris was that the uk wouldn't want to antagonize things ahead of that discussion and you know there are further discussions ahead over mackerel the uk is now an independent coastal state so these discussions have to happen between the uk norway the faroe islands iceland um, this is a big issue for irish uh, fishermen because norway and the faroe islands have massively increased their quota unilaterally uh, of mackerel because they're no longer allowed to fish in uk waters uh, and that's having a big effect on on mackerel stocks uh, all told so um, the signals I'm getting are that this will be sorted out, that they're, they're going to have more talks. And the UK is saying, look, we're helping the French to to determine what criteria they need to show that they've been fishing in these waters historically. And we're doing our best to make sure everyone gets a license. But clearly in the wake of the AUKUS affair, the submarine affair, um, French uh, tempers were already very frayed. And this was another issue that, that, that uh, suddenly played into... Um, the French court uh, and they were very angry about it um, so we'll have to see whether they can actually work this out in, in the coming days but it, again it hasn't helped the mood when it comes to working out what new proposals the commission is going to bring forward on the protocol because obviously every member state has to give its approval to whatever new flexibilities are agreed by the commission um, each member state, including France, will have to agree those uh, flexibilities when they come forward after the Conservative Party conference. And this is seen as not very helpful in that regard. Right. Sean, and just Tony touched on that issue that he, he mentioned. Maybe it mightn't be politic to antagonise the French at the moment, but over on the UK side of things, one could, one could be forgiven for thinking that antagonising the French wasn't really too much of a worry in uh, British political circles, at least on government circles, should I say. Well, it never has been. I mean, antagonising the French is the whole point of being British on some days of the week. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, uh, there's always that spiky relationship between Britain and France, two similar-sized countries, uh, similar histories, similar big uh, views on uh, how their place in the world uh, should be organised and perhaps sometimes how the world should be organised around them. But uh, look, they're in that uh, love-hate relationship, always will be, I suspect. And uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't pay too much right. heed uh, to the issue of antagonising the French. Things are sensitive because of the submarine issue. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but on the other hand, that's business, isn't it? And uh, I think that's the way the British would, would see it. It's a, it's a big business deal as well as a big strategic deal. And uh, if the French are discommoded, uh, so be it. There are plenty of other strategic issues uh, to uh, be friends with the French about. I mean, after all, the British have these two aircraft carriers that were made by the French and, and sold to them at very large uh, cost. So uh, maybe they think it's their time to win a little bit of naval business for themselves. Right. And as you contemplate the world from that ill-serviced oubliette you're currently located in, Sean, uh, <laughs> what's coming up for you in the coming week? My drafty Garrett. Uh, well, I'm, the only reason I'm here and sticking with it is that Conservative Party conference uh, that's uh, coming up next week. Like I said, we've got Lord Frost speaking bright and early to the conference on Monday morning. He's going to be followed by uh, Stephen Barclay, who used to be the Brexit secretary uh, and is now the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. He's going to be telling us 
how they're going to be implementing uh, their Tory party manifesto. That's probably his key job. He's going to be passing uh, the duchy on the left-hand side, I guess. <laughs> or maybe the right-hand side, you never know. And, uh, you know, part of that uh, manifesto, as Lord Frost never ceased to remind us, was the commitment to getting Brexit done. So maybe there'd be a little bit about that, because uh, Mr Barclay would know a lot about it. Uh, but also this levelling up uh, business, we're going to hear a lot about that, presumably crowned uh, later in the week by Boris Johnson when he addresses them on Wednesday morning. It's a very curious thing, I have to say, these party conferences in Britain where they have these leader speeches uh, in the middle of the morning, in the middle of the week, rather than what might be more traditional in the Irish sense of, of doing it on a Saturday night for a primetime audience. But there you go. Such is the British way. Uh, and then later on, final part of the week, uh, certainly an assignment for me is going to be uh, looking at some portraits from the negotiations of the treaty, um, not the Brexit treaty, the treaty, if you're Irish, the one that was done in 1921. Yes, we're getting very, very close to the centenary of that uh, treaty that ended the War of Independence in Ireland, created the Irish Free State, uh, a dominion which would have similar status to Canada, the original Canada deal, if you like, and it had an opt-out for Northern Ireland, which didn't have to join this new uh, state, an opt-out which was, of course, uh, acted uh, upon. So that's coming up soon and there's going to be an exhibition in London, uh, I think it's in the Irish Embassy, uh, of portraits that were done at the time of the delegates, people like Lloyd George and Winston Churchill uh, and Michael Collins. So uh, something to see later on in the week. Uh, and there wasn't an Article Monday. 16 for anyone to trigger in that, in that particular treaty? There certainly was not and, uh, <laughs> and indeed no Article 50 from the United Kingdom either. <laughs> Uh, you, you missed one uh, important marking, Sean, Manchester United versus Everton uh, tomorrow being Saturday. That's surely part I, of your busy reporting agenda. You won't be able to see it, the telly. The telly isn't good enough in the grotty grotto. Exactly. Yeah, it does have sports channels, but no subscriptions to them. Would you believe it? Anyway, Andy Burnham, uh, who is the mayor of Manchester, is uh, a lifelong Everton fan. So he's got a tricky assignment. He will be at the game uh, in Old Trafford, uh, having to be careful how he does his shouting and cheering, and uh, depending on who's winning and who's losing on that one. Right, he can discreetly chew a toffee during the match. That should that that should do the job. Tony, what about you in the coming week? Yes, well, the, all of the attention will be on uh, the Conservative Party conference, uh, as we were talking about earlier, and then once that's done, um, we're expecting Maros Shevchevich to come forward with his proposals on the... The Northern Ireland Protocol, as I mentioned last week, I think, yeah, this will be on, there'll be a legislative proposal on medicines. In other words, the EU is going to change the law, its own law, to facilitate the free flow of medicines from GB to Northern Ireland. Uh, there'll be further proposals on uh, customs, SPS checks, and uh, yeah, the, the whatever oversight role that, that Stormont can have in the operating of the protocol. It, it's a tricky one for the Commission because the, all of the services in the Commission, the different uh, Directorate Generals are, I'm told they are working very hard. They're pushing the limits of EU law and what's permitted within the treaties to try and find flexibilities. Uh, and that is a slow process. It, they have to run all these uh, issues through all of the cabinets of the different commissioners. And then, of course, they have to run it by the member states. And the key sort of context of this is that the UK is insisting that uh, whatever the Commission com bring forward won't be simply a take-it-or-leave-it uh, package of measures, that there will be some kind of co-ownership of this by the British side. So the Commission is having to 
discreetly inform the UK of the direction of travel, the kind of landing zones that they're thinking of, um, without necessarily alienating the member states who haven't been told yet what are in these proposals. And of course, um, the European Parliament will have co-decision on the on the medicines issue. It means that the European Parliament will have a very big role in agreeing any legislation on medicines. Um, whereas the other issues are uh, within the discretion of the European Commission to simply issue guidance that the protocol will be implemented and interpreted in, in this way or that way and so on. So that's really going to be a big issue after the Conservative Party conference is over. I'm going to be tied up with a uh, a European Commission um, summit on sustainable investment. Uh, it's, it's something I'm going to be moderating as, as an RT correspondent. They've asked me to moderate that with a, a colleague from Bloomberg. So that's going to take me somewhat out of the Brexit loop next week. Uh, but anything that I can pick up in the meantime, I will yeah, I, I be doubt, happy to I, bring to the party. I doubt that very much. You're never, you're never that far <laughs> from the Brexit loop. Try, try as you might. The Michael Corleone of Brexit. You try to get out, but it just keeps dragging you back in. Yeah. Okay, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Kildare, and I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent, normally in London, but this week in Manchester. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.